Jesus, we remember the first time your name meant something to us. Your holiness, your comeliness, your care for us, your challenge, your call to pick up our crosses and follow you, to leave our nets behind and follow you, to leave our tax collecting behind and follow you. We give you praise. We thank you for your servant and for his willingness, his insistence that we look at you again. Look at you as the one who provides living water, rivers of living water. The one who spoke to John on that island and continues to speak to us through that vision. We pray that your word and, and your servant and your spirit would continue to draw us to you, Jesus. We want to be closer. We want to be more like you. We want to see you more clearly. We want to follow after you more closely. We thank you for the opportunity to do so. In Jesus' name, in your name, amen. May we see you. Appreciated the ministry of Reverend McWhorter. Everybody should have a chance to pick him up from the, air, from the motel. I love our conversations in the morning. Come and minister to us. Turn with me to the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 20 through 25. And will you stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture? Let me tell you something I haven't told in a long time. Two and a half years ago, I could not read the Bible. And my ophthalmologist said my eyesight would never get better. Two years later, he said, what I already knew, your eyesight is better. It's improved. It's still about 20% blur, but it's improved about 50%. I've had a bunch of miracles in my life in the last four years. Glory to God. Bless the Lord. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own turn, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign, for he must reign, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You may be seated. I lift out this phrase from verse 25 as the basis for the message of the morning. And I look at my watch and it means nothing. 
I lift out this phrase from verse 25. He must reign. Christ must reign. That text is too much for me. It's too grand, too lofty, too magnificent. I feel dreadfully presumptuous to take it as my text. I feel about as presumptuous as the little boy in the third grade of school who arose and announced as the subject of his third grade essay, the world and all that is in it. <laughs> it's too much for me, but I love the very pronouncing of it. I love the authority, the majesty, the militancy, the triumph that sounds in the very pronouncing of it. I've loved to say it again and again. It sounds like it should be words to a grand oratorio. Christ must reign. He must reign. He must reign. Not perhaps so. Not maybe so. Not probably so not wistful thinking, or wishful thinking, I should say, not wishful thinking. There is a vast difference between what the world calls hope and Christian hope. Christian hope is not based on wishful thinking, what might happen. Christian hope is based on what God is certainly going to do because of what God has already done in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ must reign. It is fixed. It is settled. It is sure. It is predestined. It is foreordained, and those words predestined and foreordained are unknown tongues to some of us. Hello. <laughs> it is fixed, it is settled, it is sure, it is predestined, it is foreordained, it is settled. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. There are some things in God's purpose that are locked in so deeply that the devil himself cannot even tamper with them. Christ must reign. Things are not hanging in the balance. It was settled that he must reign before the foundation of the world, before the morning stars sang together and the sons of joy, God shouted for joy, before the planets ran their rounds, or the day star knew its place, it was settled that Christ must reign. Hallelujah. Some dear Christians seem to live as though and think as though the mission of the Church of Jesus Christ is to conduct a vote and take a poll, and if we, get, if we can rev it up enough, then we get enough folk to vote for Christ, he'll be elected. But if enough folk vote for the level, that for the devil, the devil will be elected. I have a wonderful Greek phrase to explain that. It is, it ain't so. We're not conducting a vote 
to get Jesus Christ elected, he's already elected. We're not out on a mission to make, we're not out, we're not out on a nervous, neurotic, Nazarene, had, couldn't resist the third end. <laughs> we're not out on a nervous, neurotic, Nazarene campaign to try to conduct, get, make Jesus Christ king. We're not trying to make Christ king. He's already king. And nothing is more urgently needed for you and me and our old world this morning than to know that Christ must reign, Christ will reign, and to know what the future belongs to. If there's anything this blessed book of God tells us, it tells us that the future belongs to God. Glory be to God. What you and I believe about the future, whether we're conscious of it or not, what you and I believe about the future deeply, daily, in detail, touches, tones, and texturizes our individual, personal lives. Hear it. Hear it. What you, you might not, oh, you may, multitudes will never know what eschatology means and never even heard the word. Who struggle and hope and work and labor and toil and dream and aspire and are disappointed and crushed and broken and out there and almost illiterate poor souls live their lives in obscurity. Their lives are shaped and touched deeply every day by what they believe about the future. In our joys, our sorrows, our anxieties, our burdens, our longings, what we believe about the future makes all the difference. What the future belongs to. And I hope you're not disappointed, but I'm not going to argue about post-trib, mid-trib, or pre-trib this morning. I'm not going to argue about post or R or nil millennialism. I made a fatal mistake at Liberty University. After preaching in the, to the whole student body and at the church, I preached a closed session of nothing but Baptist ministerial students, and I said that old threadbare, hackneyed, worn line about, I said, some folk are post-millennialists, some folk are pre-millennialists, some folk are amillennialists. I said, I'm a pan-millennialist. If you know the Lord, everything will pan out all right. And I didn't know that they were split three ways between post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib, and they were barely speaking to each other. And they'd laughed at all my corny old jokes and it received me wonderfully till I did that and boy, did I drop a bomb. Man, their faces froze. I was in the who's through club. <laughs> I'm like Dr. B.V. Seals. Dr. Seals, if you never knew him, you've never really lived. Dr. B.V. Seals said, if I could understand the meaning of all the horses in the book of Revelation, I would have horsepower unlimited. <laughs> but I'm going to give you, and you can go to seminars on so-called prophecy, get charts and diagrams and split hairs and revel in all kinds of cheap sensationalism. It sells a lot of books. 
Uh-oh, I shouldn't have said that. That slipped out. I'm incorrigible. I, it's compulsive, obsessive. I'm not morally responsible. <laughs> you can go to all these conferences on so-called prophecy and study all these charts and diagrams. When I was 18 years old, as a young pastor, I pastored three churches on a circuit when I was 18 years old, which is simply my way of inserting this remark so that you'll realize I was a hot dog. And I knew everything about prophecy. I could explain all the charts, all the diagrams. So for the life of me, I don't know how all that near omniscience has evaporated so. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you the whole truth of eschatology, the whole truth of the second coming in one sentence, and I'm going to save you all that money. You won't have to spend all that money on, uh, on CDs and books and seminars. I'm saving you hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Remember that. Be grateful. Keep those cards and letters coming. <laughs> Give your money to God, but mail it to my address. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought me here just before the end of my journey. There's a possibility that at last they might find out I'm the best kept secret in the church of the Nazarene. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you the whole truth of the second coming of Jesus Christ eschatology. Here it is. Evil doesn't have a ghost of a chance. Christ must reign. He must reign because he does reign. He reigns now. The day of his return is not the day when he will become king. It is the day when he will be revealed as king. It is the day when wicked, unbelieving, disobedient men will see what the people of God already see, and that is that Jesus Christ is king of kings and lord of lords now. He's not only the king of his church. He's not simply the king of a society of sentimentalists selling salve or a band of dreamers on the hillsides watching the parade go by. He's Lord of all creation. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He's Lord of all truth. He's Lord of all reality. Bless his holy name. Glory to God. Oh, magnify the Lord. He reigns now. His kingdom is and is to come. His kingdom is and is to come. He reigns now. He reigns now in heaven. That's not a figment of Christian imagination. That's not a little bit of theological jargon. That's blessed rock-based reality this very moment. Somewhere in the bright worlds of God, the man from the middle cross, the carpenter from Nazareth, is seated on the throne of glory. He's seated on the throne of heaven where cherubim and seraphim bowed down before him and all the host of glory chant one unbroken, unceasing anthem, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. He's reigning now in heaven. Don't worry about charts and diagrams. Don't worry about celestial geography. Wherever heaven is, it's there. And it's real. And it's secure. <laughs> Even though the Russian cosmonauts, who were the first human beings to orbit the earth through space, reported cynically that they saw neither God nor heaven, 
if you will stretch your brain. Phillips Brooks used to exhort his congregation in Boston to bring their brains to church, and that wouldn't overload most of us. If you will, but even though the Russian cosmonauts said they saw neither God nor heaven in their space trip, if you would stretch your brain, it is remotely conceivable that there are realities and verities and certainties and qualities beyond the scope of the vision of Russian cosmonauts. He reigns in heaven now, and I want to stay there but I've got to condense, and I hate to condense. But uh, he not only reigns in heaven, he reigns in history. And we have often heard that someone said, history is best pronounced his story. And the moment that you and I as Christians dare to assert that Christ is reigning in history, that God in Christ is race reigning in history. The moment we say that, we have, to say the least, we have a problem of communication to an ungodly world. For the moment we say that God in Christ is reigning in history, a cynical, scornful, skeptical world will say in effect, how can you Christians look at the sordid, tumultuous agony, the long travail of human history from time immemorial down to this last moment, man's crimes and cruelty and injustice and humanity and inhumanity. How can you look at earthquakes and famines and pestilence? How can you look at all of the long travail of human history with all its burden and mystery and tragedy? How can you Christians look at that and dare to assert that a personal God that a personal God is presently, personally, actively present, involved, and participating in history and working out his purpose in human history. How can you dare to say that? And man, that's a problem of communication. But the people of God have learned the deep secret. It's an open secret to the people of God. It's a lost secret to an ungodly world. But the people of God have learned the deep secret, and that is that God is mo often most present in history when he seems most absent. That God is often present in history when he seems most absent. <clears throat> For 400 years before the birth of Christ, no great prophet arose, no sign from God, no word from God, no visit from God for 400 years. We get deeply disturbed if he waits four weeks. We panic if he waits four years. They waited 400 years. And it seemed that God had forgotten but back of the darkness of 400 years, rather, back of the silence of 400 years, and back of the darkness of an oriental night, 
God was busy all the time. God was busy all the time. God was busy crafting a manger bed. God was busy sculpting a star to hang over a cow shed in Judea. God was busy weaving a garment of flesh to wrap around a babe and bring to Bethlehem. This God is still God this morning. Christ is reigning in history. He's there all the time. Let me, in a very feeble, fumbling, faltering way, try to illustrate how God works in history and how God in Christ is reigning in history. You know, oh, this congregation, you know very well about that night of all nights when the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus had made a decree for a taxation survey, or a census rather, throughout the Roman Empire and its provinces. And apparently, because of Caesar's decree, a peasant couple had to make the long, wearisome journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. What is it, about 100 miles or 80 miles? And in those days, that was like traveling thousands of miles. And uh, even though she was eight months pregnant, probably when they began the journey, even she was not exempt from the iron-fisted decree of Caesar Augustus, and they made the journey to the village of Bethlehem, and there the babe was born in the barn at Bethlehem. And that night, when the babe was born in the barn at Bethlehem, far away on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, in the city of Rome, in the palace of the emperors, Caesar Augustus retired to sleep, luxurating in the sense of his power and the sweep of his empire and the might of his thundering legions. He retired to his sleep, and as he retired to his palace bedroom, Caesar probably thought, I am mighty Caesar. I rule the world. I am the emperor of Rome. My word is law. Multitudes are moving at my command tonight. And he fell asleep. And that night, while Caesar slept, if an angel of the Lord had walked into Caesar's bedroom and awakened him from his sleep, the angel of the Lord could have said, Caesar Augustus, forget all about your empire. Forget all about your thundering legions. Forget all about your might and power. The angel of the Lord could have said, Caesar Augustus, the only thing that really matters tonight is that on the edge of your empire, in a tiny little obscure village, a peasant woman is having a baby. Caesar that's all that's great tonight. That's all that's mighty tonight. That's all that's power tonight. That's all that's enduring tonight. That's all, Caesar, Caesar, that's all that's really news tonight. <laughs> Caesar would have laughed. He would have thought it was some 
insane magician playing a wild joke on him. That's exactly why God did not waste an angel's visit on Caesar. God originated the idea of conserving energy. You know what God did that night, don't you? God took a pale, pitiful, puny, pagan potentate. Never lose, use one word when 12 will do. God took a pale, pitiful, puny, pagan potentate. Didn't have to do it. Don't know why in the world he did do it. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be like Mother Teresa. When I first, somebody said to Mother Teresa, what are you going to ask the Lord when you first get to heaven? She said, I'm going to say, you've got a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> God didn't have to do it. But God, in his inscrutable, ineffable purpose, God harnessed this pale, pitiful, puny, pagan potentate up to God's purpose, not Caesar's purpose. Up to God's schedule, not Caesar's schedule. Up to God's program. Up to God's program, not Caesar's program, and God used Caesar. Maybe the clue is in Holy Writ where we read, He makes the wrath of man to praise him. God used Caesar to get the babe to Bethlehem on God's schedule. And that night in the palace in Rome, if an angel had said, All that matters is in that barn on the edge of your empire, he would have laughed. But the fact is, not the dream, not the hope so, not the legend, but the fact. I love what C.S. Lewis says when he has the skeptic saying, what's the difference between your rising God, Jesus, and all the mythological dying and rising gods? C.S. Lewis says, with Christ, the myth happened. Bless my soul. <laughs> the fact is, the fact is that the barn has outlasted the palace. And the star of Bethlehem has outlasted the Roman eagle and the babe in the barn has outlasted the pompous emperor. And that is still God's program this morning for Nazarene Bible College for you and you and you personally, individually, existentially in your private lives and all that's happening to you. That's still God's program. Get on board. <laughs> I don't know why does God doesn't do things like we would understand. How he moves in his time. Those 400 years they waited, why didn't God move faster? 
We know that a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day and the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Our problem is we want God to get in a hurry. Not in general eschatological. I had to really work. I, you know, I never knew words like that till I knew I was coming here. I had to work all week to get ready for that. <laughs> eschatological. That's, that's not true. Uh, I'm a professing Wesleyan and a practicing Calvinist, so I say some things are not necessarily true. <coughs> if there are any literalists here, we're in awfully big trouble. If there are any literalists here. We want God to get in hurry. We want God to get in a hurry by our understanding of what it means to get in a hurry. But God doesn't have to get in a hurry by our understanding of what it means to get in a hurry. God is as you well know, God is within time. He is beyond time. He is imminent. He is transcendent. He is within history. He is beyond history. He doesn't have to get in a hurry. God never has to get in a hurry. <laughs> he never panics. He's never caught off guard. He never operates under emergency conditions or anything unexpected. He doesn't. He's within time. He's beyond time. Somebody said, how can your Christian God answer the prayers of a million different people all praying to him at the same time at 10.30 p.m.? C.S. Lewis said, phooey. Great English word. Phooey. Lewis said, with God, it is never 10.30 p.m. <laughs> he reigns in history. Somebody say amen. I said, somebody say amen. I grew up in Alabama where the black preacher said, somebody say amen. And he didn't mean somebody. He meant everybody say amen. And you don't say amen. You say it in the rhythm. I say, somebody say amen. You say, amen. Now you got it. We started that sooner. I'd preach myself half to death. He reigns in heaven and he reigns in history, and he'll reign hereafter. Here is a brief summary of where history is headed. Wicked, arrogant, pompous, ego-maniacal men, tinny tyrants of time, come strutting and parading and swaggering out on the stage of human history. Genghis Khan, Tamerlane, Alexander the Great, the Caesars, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Ho Chi Minh, Saddam Hussein. They come swaggering, reeking with arrogance, drunk with an exaggerated sense of their importance. They walk out onto the stage of history, pompous pimples on the epidermis of the earth. They, they, walk, they walk out onto the stage of human history. And they stand 
on the center of the stage of history, and they bask in the floodlights, and they're certain and convinced that they're directing the play, and they're certain and they're convinced that they're determining the play. They take their little bow, and they slip into the shadows of the wings, and they are no more. But here's the summary of it all. When the curtain rises, when the curtain rises on the final drama and the closing act of human history, the conqueror from Calvary the traveler from Edom, from Basra with garments red, who hath tread the winepress bravely, who will see his soul and be satisfied, the man from Golgotha, the carpenter from Nazareth. will stand all alone on the stage, for he will be the only one left on the stage, and he and he alone will conduct the finale and he and he alone will ring down the curtain. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, haste the day when faith will be made sight. The clouds roll back like a scroll. The trump shall descend, shall sound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Hallelujah. Come, my dear brother, and give us the response. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Everybody say, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name.